You are listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we continue our study by examining how we are intended to love, live, and learn from others in our church family with a series that we are calling Life in the Family. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. So... You may recognize this, I don't know if the camera will pick up on this, as a lifesaver, but these are so much more to my family than just lifesavers. Story goes like this, this is where it began for us. Uh, Growing up, our favorite, my favorite television show was Happy Days. Mid-70s to mid-80s, loved it. Loved it. Matter of fact, I felt like my family was the Cunninghams, if you Remember the show at all? There was a, a, a loving, involved, hardworking father involved in his marriage and with his kids. Uh, there was a loving, doting mother who uh, loved her husband and loved her kids and was invested in a couple of kids, sometimes needed object lessons, sometimes made mistakes every now and again. Our family even, there was a character named Fonzie. It felt like our family even had our Fonzie, uh, this guy that was in college for several years. It was a part of our world. So within that, we just loved that show. And the love for Lifesavers started in an episode. In a particular episode, Richie was the son, uh, and he had missed a free throw that would have kept him in a ball game, but he missed it, and so they lost. And so you can imagine if you've ever had a moment like that where you felt like your failure was lived out before everybody. Guilty, uh, you were struggling, it was painful, you felt like you had brought shame to yourself, to the family, to the school, the whole bit, right? And so in this, Richie's standing there, the gymnasium has ended, and Richie's still out there shooting free throws. He's hurting. And the camera pans up, up into the bleachers, and there's one person left, and it's his father. And you think, what does a dad say to his son in this moment? And so what happens is, all of a sudden, Howard, the father, comes down out of the bleachers. And there's his son, and he walks up to him. And what is he going to say? What's he going to do? And he reached into his pockets. He's just trying to offer his son something. He reaches into his pocket, and he's got lifesavers. And he hands him a lifesaver. And in that moment, I can tell you, like, that's what a good dad would do. Now, I will tell you that it wasn't that many years later that I was Richie. I'm in a middle school basketball game, and I missed more free throws in that game than the number of points we lost by. And for crying out loud, it's a free throw. It's free. Nobody's even guarding you, right? It's the same shot every time. How do you miss free throws? You just practice, and then you step up there and make it. Only I didn't make it, and I missed enough of them that we lost the game. And I was devastated. I brought shame to myself, my team, my school, my family name, the whole bit, right? Everything is lost. And so dad puts me in the back of the car and we're driving home and he pulls into a 7-Eleven. You want to come in? No. I can't let anybody see my face. I'm the shame of everything. And so I stay in the car. He probably left the air conditioning running for me. And then he, uh, he came out. And he handed me a pack of Lifesavers. And I knew exactly what that meant. I couldn't have missed it. I will tell you that I carry that into parenthood. By the time my kids are hitting adolescence, thankfully there was now a store called Sam's. um, And you could buy a case of these, right? The kind that if you ever go to a concession stand, they've got the little box top that you pull off and you just, probably for $4 or something, right? 
And so I would buy them in that many at a time because life is hard. And so I got to where I would just hand them out to my kids. I'm sorry. I know you're going through a hard thing. Here's a lifesaver. Take it with you. I'm with you. I will tell you that on, uh, my, my kids learn because on what is the hardest day of, uh, of parenting that we faced in our home uh, was a day that I decided that I was going to give my daughter some lifesavers. Uh, and unbeknownst to me, she decided, understanding how painful it was from the parental side, she got me lifesavers, and we didn't know it. And at the point in time where I decided to give her lifesavers, she turned around and gave me lifesavers because it's become that meaningful to us. Now, I got to tell you, it reminds me of a quote from a guy named Henry Nowen. Um, I don't agree with everything Henry says in his writings for sure, uh, but Henry Nowen captures something when he tells us uh, that friendship is just being with the other when you cannot increase their joy or decrease their sorrow. The idea that says, I'm going to step into your life and I'm going to be alongside you, not because I can solve the problem or make it better. I can't add to the joy. I can't decrease the sorrow. But I know this, I'm going to keep walking into your life and I'm going to stand there side by side with you. And I'm going to give you me. And that's going to be my presence. This morning, as we continue on in our series uh, of encouraging one another, last week we talked about bearing with one another. Last week was bearing with one another. And we talked about the differences in the way that people think. We welcome, uh, we welcome and accept those things when people think differently than us. We've got to bear with those who maybe have personality quirks, things that kind of irritate us in the way they do things. Like if you've ever shared a tube of toothpaste with somebody that just radically grabs it in the middle and squeezes from the middle. See, you bear with that. That's bearing with somebody, right? Uh, and then forgiving. And, and part of, I think, what would help us bear with one another better would be if we actually knew them and knew their story. Because if we knew them and knew their story, we probably would care just a little bit more about them. We'd give them more grace. And so when we come into our passage this morning, imagine if not only if we could bear with them, imagine if we knew them well enough that we might understand where they need encouragement. This word, this phrase, encourage one another, will appear three times in Scripture. We're going to look at two of the passages this morning. If you want to turn in your copy of Scripture, whether or not it's a digital copy or a, 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 paper, a, a physical copy, invite you to grab that. Now, I want to be real clear when we talk about encouraging one another, what we're talking about and what we're not talking about. The word encourage in English, it's a verb. It's something that you do. It's not a state of being. It is something that we're called to go do. It means to give support, confidence, or hope to someone. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say you have to be brilliant. It doesn't mean that you have to have something really witty. It doesn't mean that you have everything together in your life. It doesn't mean that you figured out the world's problems. You're going to show up and you're going to give support. You're going to offer a level of confidence or hope to somebody. I put the etymology of the word where the word comes from because it captures the root of something that we may have lost. Encourage was originally spelled with an I. Why is that important? Because at the base of it, what it means is somebody in your world is lacking courage, and by your investment and involvement in their life, you instill courage inside of them, and they walk away encouraged. Now, I want you to think with me about how powerful that is. 
Because in this world, you and I have the ability to discourage and pull courage out of a person, or we have the opportunity to encourage and instill courage into another person. Now, I want you to think with me about which one you see more uh, often in our world. That's not hard to figure out. And we have this calling. Now, when we read the word encourage in our New Testament, it comes from this Greek word paraclete. And I will explain why I'm giving you that word here in a second. But this is the sense that it means in the original language is to address or to speak to, which may be done in ways of exhortation, entreaty, comfort, instruction. And so there's a whole lot of senses to it. But why I want to tell you the word paraclete is that that word is the most often used word to describe the Holy Spirit and who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete. He's our paraclete. Now, I want that to sit there with you for a moment to recognize. Is that the very word that says encourage one another is the same word that is used to describe the Holy Spirit's role in my life and your life as the helper, the advocate. The encourager. Now think with me about how humbling it is by the reality that you and I are called to step into another's world in such a way that God can use us in their life in the same way that he uses the Holy Spirit to encourage that person. Now let that sit there for a second. That is how hugely significant it is. And so when we say it can occur in a variety of senses, I mean, you see all these things to admonish or exhort. Come on, you got this. You can do this. Let's step forward. You can do this. Be the man or woman God calls you to be, to beg and treat, beseech you. I implore you, please make a decision that honors the Lord, to console, to encourage, to strengthen by consolation, to come alongside like Richie needed that day, like I needed that day, like I needed with my daughter that day, like my daughter needed from me that day, is just coming alongside Not because I can increase the joy or decrease the sorrow. It's just I'm physically with you in this. So how do we do that? To encourage or strengthen. Combining the ideas of exhorting, comforting, encouraging. And maybe there's a moment to instruct or to teach. That may be there as well. But with that understanding, let's look at what we learn in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul is going to offer us a number of statements that are simple, factual statements. And as he walks us through this passage, he's going to make all of these a premise, a premise, a premise, a premise. This is true. This is true. This is true. This is true. And then he's going to get to the very end and going to say, because all these things are true, therefore, I want you to do two things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 Verse 1, I'll be stopping along the way to kind of call attention to some of these simple statements of fact that he's offering us. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, brothers and sisters, he's writing to believers. Those are the people that he is writing these things to. This isn't true about everybody in the world, but if you know Christ, this is what is true about you. You have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware Now let's stop. I'm writing you to tell you something you already know. This isn't new information. You know this. And I believe, like they, like so many of us, me included, is the quest in this Christian life. I know enough things about this book right now 
that if I don't learn new stuff and nothing else ever happened in my life other than I was reminded of the stuff that I've already been taught, I would be better off for it. Paul isn't going to give him anything new in this, in this section. He's just reminding him. Because more often, our problem that we face as we walk with the Lord isn't that we uh, don't know enough. It's that we have forgotten. And so he's offering them some reminders. You yourself, you are already are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you know this day is coming. You know, the world can look around and say, peace and security, we've got it all figured out. We can do all of these things. Life is really good. We've got this thing figured out. And he says, you know what? The Lord is going to come. This day of the Lord is coming. It's when the, ultimately the Lord will move forward with his plan for how we move forward. And he says, you know what? It's going to come like a thief in the night, like labor pains. And the world doesn't have a clue that it's coming. But brothers and sisters of Christ, that's not true about you. You know this. You're already fully aware. Verse 4, you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to be a surprise, you, to surprise you like a thief. For you're all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of darkness. The Lord's already told us, hey, this is what's coming. So we don't need to be in the dark, metaphorically, like I have no idea what's coming. We're just walking around and all of a sudden it's going to happen. No, I want you to be fully aware. You already know this is coming. So I want you to be aware of this. You're children of light. You're children of the day. You have the lights on. You know what's coming. Verse 6, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Sleep here is not a metaphor for death like it gets used so many times in Scripture. This is, I'm not slumbering. I'm not lazy. I'm not checked out. Be sober. Don't be intoxicated. Don't be at the level that you can't comprehend what's going on. Have your wits about you so that you're aware of what's coming. Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. Those of you that are, that are checked out, unaware of what's going on. It's because you live in the dark or because you've drinking so much that you have lost your sobriety. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, brothers and sisters in Christ, since we belong to the day where the light is, here's our calling, be sober, have our wits about it, be aware, be alert, be ready to go. And then he talks to us like we're soldiers having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet for hope, the hope of salvation. Two things. Why? Because life in the light recognizes is that this world is painful and it seeks to shut us down and to rob us of our hope. So put on this breastplate of righteousness, this breastplate of faith and love. Faith, the conviction of what we believe. Love, the way that it manifests itself out in the world. Why? Because as soon as we get discouraged, you know what we quit doing? We start questioning our faith. Did I ever really change? Could God love a person like me? What if I fail? Could he even love me in his failure? Maybe I've never changed. Maybe I don't even know him. See, that breastplate of faith protects our faith. Love. Who am I to step into another person's life to offer them love or encouragement? I can't because I'm a fraud. And so I, I've got nothing to offer 
That's the breastplate. The helmet, the hope. Not hope as in, I hope it rains this week, or I hope that it stays cool and we're done with 100-degree temperatures. Hope in the biblical sense is a certainty of that which is to come. It just hasn't happened yet. The hope of our salvation. I've got to put that on my head because what I recognize is this. I could go through watching the news and say, the world's falling apart. Is God in control? Does he have a plan? Is there any protection? I don't feel safe. Could I be safe? Could I be safe in this world? I don't know that I could. Man, I need that helmet of salvation right there for the hope that is God is in control. He is sovereign and he has made some bold promises. Like he's going to work all things together for the good. For everyone? No. But for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And I've got to put that helmet on every day. And you know the thing about it? And you know this. Every day, you and I have to put on that breastplate. We have to put on that helmet. And it gets so wearisome, doesn't it? Why can't I just leave it off today? Just give me a day off. It's a daily thing. For God has not destined us for wrath. See, the person who lives in the light knows that. The person in the dark doesn't even know it's coming. To obtain a salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Let me tell you, that is one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture, that we were destined for death until we had a substitute and a Savior. And all of a sudden, we had a substitute. How does Paul write it? To obtain a salvation through, through, this is our person, this is how, Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he died for us. So whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. That moment is there. After all of these statements, this is true, 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 this is true. Verse 11, here's your two imperatives, two directives for us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, because of all of those things being true, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. Again, with the reminder, they are already doing it. It's not like this was new information. Keep doing it. You're doing it. But let me remind you, Because if you think you can take today off and just quit encouraging others and quit building up others, and you just think, you know what, I just need a day off, no, 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 no. That's not how it's going to work. Because every day we've got to put on that breastplate. Every day we've got to put on that helmet. And we may need to walk up to somebody and say, hey, your helmet's a little crooked. Let me straighten that up for you. Let me help you with that breastplate. Because we're walking out into a world that is discouraging We can look around and we see it, we know it, and all of a sudden within this, we recognize we need to be reminded. And that is true for every Christian. We never outgrow the call to encourage and build up another. And you are never so new to the faith that this doesn't apply to you as well. No matter how long you've known the Lord, whether or not you trusted Christ as Joe was sharing the gospel before we took the elements this morning, or whether you've known the Lord for 75 years, We will never, ever outgrow the call to encourage and build up another person. Nothing's wasted. Nothing is wasted. Whatever struggles you've had in this life, God wants to redeem them and use them for his purposes. You've got a story to tell. And there is going to be another person 
who knows what you've been through. So when you get your breastplate resituated, when you get your helmet back on, then jump back in because somebody else needs the encouragement that says, you know what, I've been where you are and I can get, you can get through it because I did. And all of a sudden, we can start walking with this. If you would, turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. It's going to become even more clear, I think, in this passage. Hebrews chapter 10. Encourage one another appears three times. 1 Thessalonians 4, which we looked at actually a couple of weeks ago in a different context. 1 Thessalonians 5 that we just looked at. And now Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 24. Author of Hebrews writes this. And let us consider, I want to stop, because if we think consider is anything that is passive or let me from time to time daydream or drift or whatever, I'll give you another definition to a word. It's a verb. It's something that we have to do. And it means to consider attentively that you and I would fix our eyes or our mind upon something. So when he's saying, and let us consider verb. It's imperative. We have got to do this. We've got to be attentive to the things around us. You know why that's hard? Because we can become so enamored with ourselves. We can become so overwhelmed with what we're facing that we lack the capacity to step into another person's shoes. So when we look back with that definition still there, look at what he says. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us consider, let me think and be attentive to you. What do I see? What do I hear? How are they acting? They look downtrodden. Their voice, the zest is out of their step. They seem depleted. They have no energy. I hear the defeat in their voice. I hear those things. I see them. Now, you know what? That takes energy. It's a verb. We've got to step into it. We've got to be able to get outside of ourselves and consider what we see in those people around us. Otherwise, we may never know that they're hurting. We may never know that they need encouragement. It's one thing to bear with one another, but what made them who they were to the point that you and I could encourage them? We don't know how to encourage them if all of a sudden you, you haven't paid attention to their life. How do you know what to speak into them? You can't. And the word is that we would consider attentively fixing our eyes on another person. To do what? To stir up one another to love and good works. To stir up another person to love and good works. Go back to that Greek word encourage, paraclete, the Holy Spirit. You know what the Holy Spirit does? He stirs up in us love and good works. That's what he calls us to. You and I may never be more like the Lord than when we step into another person's life to encourage them and build them up. What a high calling. If we say, hey, we're looking for op- if you're looking for opportunities to serve, we've got a whole bunch of roles that you can serve in that be a faithful minister that could change a life. You know where that may begin? That may begin with you being attentive enough to another person's need that you just speak words of hope and truth to them. That's a calling that you and I have. Stirring up. Stirring up. Sometimes when I, think, when I think stir up, the word literally means to irritate or to provoke. Now, I got to tell you, if you know people that like to stir up trouble, right? 
that can be sarcastic. Our family, we've got a lot of that in my family of origin. In my family of four, it's all there. Imagine that what we're called to do is to stir up or to provoke love and good works. What does it look like for me to stir up in you the desire for you to love and do something of goodness for another person? That's my calling. That's your calling. So how are we going to lean into that and do that? Well, look at how he tells us to do it. Verse 25, he gives us two ways, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. There's our phrase. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. First, first way, we come together to gather. We come together to gather as the body of Christ. What happens on Sunday mornings at Grace Church is unique. One day a week, one-seventh of your year is going to be spent with the opportunity to gather with the body of believers to greet each other, to call each other by name, to embrace one another, put your arm around somebody. How was your week? You said you were going through this. I've been praying for you. How did it go? Let me care about you. We come in here corporately. We pray. We recognize our need. On days like today, we take the elements. We're reminded of the death uh, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for my benefit and yours because he loves us. We open up the scriptures to say, I, I don't know how to make this life work. I need what the Lord has. Remember Easter 2020? We were told we couldn't meet together as a church. And so what the dictate said was we could gather together the people that were necessary to put on or produce our worship service. So we, we extrapolated as far as we could. No two people, no person did two roles. We had one person in the pulpit. We had one person who would do, sing. We had a uh, play that instrument, somebody that would sing. We had somebody run cameras. We had somebody run lyrics. We had somebody run sound. We had somebody do announcements. We had an elder and the elder spouse there because it was a spiritual oversight. And then we had a police officer. If you're counting, that's eight people. Easter 2020, I preached to a room of eight people. We're people of the resurrection. And yet we couldn't gather as the body of Christ. There's something so unique and special and beautiful about the body of Christ coming together. And all I could think is, this feels abnormal. It feels abnormal. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And when I read about promises of God where he says, like, I'm going to work all things together for the good, for those who love me and are called according to his purpose... And it'd be really easy for me to say, but we missed it. You know what was great? With the recognition of this, I don't know that the gospel has ever been proclaimed worldwide to the number of people that it was as churches all across the globe live streamed their messages. And now the gospel probably had never been proclaimed to that many people at one time. What a day. And he said, you know what? You were gathering together. And then there's been some drift there's been some drift that's going on, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Some haven't left it. Some have. But you know what? There's something so unique when we walk in to say, hey, you got that helmet on today. Good job. Got that breastplate on. Good job. Did you keep it on this week? How can I help you keep it on? All of a sudden, we recognize that there's this tremendous calling about being part of the body of Christ that allows us to come together. The second part is this. 
we keep encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This isn't a time to back up. This isn't a time to withdraw or get lazy. No, because we're in the light. We live with sobriety. We're awake. We're alert to what's going on around us. This isn't a time to drift away. Because everything that's happening in my world and in your world, the Lord can use for his purposes. And sometimes we need to encourage each other. Sometimes we need to get up there and say, hey, I know you're hurting. Let me tell you about one of these times in Scripture. Simon is Simon Peter. If you know the story, Simon, Simon, behold, this is right before Jesus is going to get arrested. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed that you, that for you that your faith may not fail. Hey, Peter, I know there's a time coming. You're about to walk into a crisis moment. And I want you to know that I'm praying for you. Hear the encouragement in that already? Peter, I'm praying that you stand up strong in this. That's what I'm praying for. And when you have turned again, whoa, wait a minute. And when you've turned again, I'm praying that you're not going to fail. But Peter, what I know is this. I know that you're going to stumble and you're going to fail. But that's not the final chapter of your life. When you've turned back to me, see, we're not going to have a faith failure. We're going to have a performance failure. He's going to fall down. He's going to trip and fall. And we're going to look at that in a second. But when you get back up off the ground and we dust you off and you get that helmet back on, you get that breastplate back on, you're going to come back and you're going to strengthen your brothers. You know why? Because Peter, you're going to miss that free throw and you can't even imagine that you're going to miss the free throw. But what's going to happen is after you miss the free throw, you're going to learn that life goes on and you're going to learn something about me that you only know because when you had a performance failure and fell down flat on your face, is you have the opportunity to go back and strengthen your brothers and sisters in Christ that they haven't been there yet and you're going to offer them hope. Peter like, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Give me the ball at the free throw line. I won't miss. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, here's how you're going to miss. The rooster's not going to crow this day until you've denied me three times. You're going to deny me. Drop down later in the chap chapter, Jesus has now been arrested. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, I guess I would ask you to consider with me, describe the look. You've got people. Jesus has been arrested. He's heading off to his tribunal. Peter is there. There's a fire. And all of a sudden, Jesus and Peter lock eyes with each other. And I would ask you to consider, what do you think the look in Jesus' eyes was? Rebuke? Discipline? Disappointment? Shame? Rejection? How dare you, Peter? Peter, I told you so. Because you could maybe argue any of those things. Peter's response is he went out and wept bitterly. Turn in your copy of Scripture with me, if you would, to John chapter 21. Because I think we're going to see the answer. John chapter 21. This is after the resurrection. So we're about to have a Jesus moment with Peter. John chapter 21, verse 3. Simon Peter said to the other disciples, I'm, I'm going fishing. And they said, well, we'll go with you. They went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus called out to them and says, children, do you have any fish? And they yelled back, no. 
He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. I want you to think with me about how crazy that might have sounded. Like the fish, they're not on the left side, they're on the right side, right? And how wide was this boat? So they cast it. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved, we know that to be John, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had stripped down for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat. I don't know if you've ever gotten a look of rejection, disappointment, shame. If you have, you know that you don't jump off the boat to swim there to get as quick, there as quickly as you can. That look was a look of love. It was a look of redemption. It was a look of restoration. Come home, Peter. I already told you. I knew that you were going to fail. And my invitation was for you to get back up after you failed so that you could strengthen your brothers and sisters in Christ. So that you could tell them what it's like when you fall face forward. We don't have a faith failure. We have a performance failure. And that's what he experienced in this moment. And you know what we do? We then go label people by their performance failures. We label ourselves by our performance failures as if our identity is the worst thing we've ever had. Let me tell you, you're not as bad as your, best, as your worst day. You're probably not as good as your best day either. But you're definitely not as bad as your worst day. We all have performance failures. And what we need in those moments is we need somebody that will come alongside us and say, hey, I'm here with you. I can't increase the joy. I can't decrease the sorrow, but I'm by your side and I got a lifesaver for you. So let me lean into that because we know him as Peter who denied Christ. I'll give you another person where we did that with. Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told Thomas, hey, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. This is after his crucifixion. But he said, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand inside, I will never believe. And let's not throw stones at Thomas. He had never seen anybody raised from the dead. We haven't seen that either. Oh, that's mistaken identity, Thomas. There's no way. He's like, I want proof. I want proof. If I'm banking my whole faith on this, I want proof. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. The door was locked. Jesus came through the locked door, and he stood among them and said, peace be with you. Thank heavens, right? How scary would that be? Then he looked at Thomas, and look at what he tells Thomas. Thomas said, I need this if I'm going to believe. And the Lord, because he's omniscient, knows exactly what he needs. And he looks at him and says, hey, Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put out your hand. You know what? You want to put it in my side? Don't disbelieve. Believe. What a moment. What a moment. You know what we call him? We call him Doubting Thomas. He had a performance failure. What we should call him is look at what he says. My Lord. That definition means I belong to you. You're my master. You're, the call, you're calling the shots in my life. You're the one that I follow. And my God, he's talking to Jesus, the human. And what he just placed together is he's God incarnate. He's the God man. Not only are you the authority in my life, but you are God incarnate. And if we miss that, we miss Thomas's assertion. What a statement of faith. And yet we label him by where he failed. And we do that to ourselves as well, which is why we need to work on the, on the idea of reframing our identity. Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball uh, years ago. 
And there was a day when he was playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers at second base where they were traveling through Major League Baseball and people were booing him everywhere he went on the road. But there was one day in Brooklyn Stadium where he committed an error and his own home fans turned on him and they're all booing him. And Pee Wee Reese, the shortstop, walks over and just stands by. He couldn't shush the crowd. It's done in a statue for us. It's done in a statue for us to let us see. As Pee Wee Reese went and stood with his arm around Jackie Robinson until the booing stopped. Jackie Robinson said that moment saved his baseball career. Jackie Robinson is the only player that has his baseball number retired for every team in Major League Baseball. And according to Jackie Robinson, what saved him was a person who couldn't increase the joy or decrease the sorrow, but he could go and stand by him and give him a proverbial lifesaver. On November 5th, on Sunday, November 5th, uh, Rob Jackson was with us. He did our culture conference last year on mental health. We're bringing him back. He's going to be with us on Sunday morning and, and teach in both services. But that night, he's going to do something really special for us that we're inviting you to participate in. If you know somebody who has struggled with some, uh, some mental health anguish, as his focus that night is going to be two things. Number one is, if you're the one struggling, how do you allow somebody into your life to put their arm around you? And number two is, if you're the person who loves somebody struggling, how can you step in and put your arm around them? What's the lifesaver that you could give them? Really hope you can join us. I think it's going to be a great time for our church. But know this, encouragement doesn't increase another person's joy or decrease the sorrow sometimes. It may, but more times than not, you're just stepping into it because you care about another person enough because all those statements that Paul said are true about you and me as the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, equipped to function into another person's life in the same way the Holy Spirit does. That's our calling. It's an imperative. It really isn't a choice, but we're going to have to consider. We're going to have to be attentive to somebody outside of us if we're going to be able to do it. And I recognize this, is that you may be looking around and saying, I am such a shell of a person right now. I don't have any encouragement to give because you've been depleted. And you don't have anybody speaking words of encouragement to you. Nobody's building you up. So we may need to start with that. And maybe you have enough that you could offer another person. But I know this. I know where it's going to begin. It's going to begin with offering you truth of who you are because we've got to relabel our performance failures. We all have them. So who's coming alongside us and putting an arm around us to help us cast a vision for who God said you are and where we are headed in this world? I'm going to pray in a minute, and then we're going to roll... Uh, a short video of a bunch of statements that if you know the Lord, these are the things that are true about you. If you trusted Christ, Darren, uh, as we're preparing for communion, then this is now true of you. If you don't know the Lord, we'd love to talk with you about what it would take for this to become true of you. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. While that video is looping, I'm gonna ask you to pray about what does the Lord want to impress upon you? I'd, I'd ask you not to take pictures of the screen. You've got a QR code in your bulletin that you can access every verse that you're going to see. I just want you to sit and ask yourself, what would the Lord have for you to take to encourage you today that would begin to fill your tank so that you could offer it to somebody else? 
You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.